And welcome to episode 102 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Katie Grubbs and Christina Bieber-Lake. Hello, Katie and Christina. Hello. Hi. Um, Before we get started, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. And today, I'll ask you, in addition to introducing yourself, if you'll share with us something that's been sparking joy for you uh, this week. Uh, Christina, let's go ahead and start with you. I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. I'm an English professor at Wheaton College, where I've been teaching for 20 years. I live in Carroll Stream or Wheaton, Illinois, unincorporated Wheaton, with my husband and my son, and our house is very messy. But what sparks joy for me all the time is I've got candles that I light during my prayer time. I'm working on an Ignatian spiritual retreat program that's been going on for several weeks, and I love my candles. So that sparks joy. Wonderful. Katie, how about you? I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Sugarland, Texas, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. And I am a, an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Um, and uh, as of the last about year, I've been fully online. So that's what I've spent part of my time doing. And uh, this week, I would say that what has been sparking joy for me is that my kids have been making strides. So my 10-month-old started clapping this week, which is very cute. And, um, you know, my my six-year-old has been making huge leaps in her drawing skills and, you know, is getting closer to learning how to read. Um, Our four-year-old with autism, um, he has been talking more and more and more um, over the last couple of weeks. And our three-year-old is um, just, you know, alarmingly precocious in lots of ways. So my kids have all been growing lately, and that's really been sparking joy for me. That's fantastic. Um, My name is Alexis Neal, and I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, which is also part of the Christian Humanist Radio Uh, radio network. Um, I work part-time as an adjunct professor at Southwest Baptist University, where my husband is on the political science faculty, and I am also involved with local politics uh, in our town. Uh, I do spend most of my time at home with our two young boys. Right now, our main focus is just trying to get over this cold that we've been passing back and forth for the past month. Um, But what sparks joy for me uh, this week is I've been noticing the sprouts come up in our garden and we've got some daffodils that are starting to open up and I can see where the irises are going to be coming along soon. And I I just love spring flowers. So I'm super excited to see those um, starting to peek out after uh, lots of, you know, first winter and second winter and 11th's winter and uh, all these different freezes (laughs) that we've been having. Amen, sister. um, the, The flowers are just they just cheer me up always. So. Um, well, listeners, as you may have guessed from our intro, we are here to talk about Marie Kondo, um, best-selling author, subject of her own Netflix series, and tidying expert extraordinaire. Uh, before we start talking about um, uh, 
viewing uh, this particular phenomenon uh, through uh, through our Christian and feminist lenses. Uh, Christina, can you give us a little bit of background on Marie Kondo, her popularity and her method? Sure. I mean, we're not going to go in depth on the background because there was this whole other podcast in the Christian Humanist Network on minimalism, and we're going to link that in the show notes. But I wanted to bring it down into the specific version that um, Marie Kondo kind of inhabits. And I think there's an article that we're also going to link to that talks about the religion of Shinto, which um, 80% plus of people in Japan follow in some way or another. But it's not really a religion like Christianity or Buddhism. It's more like a way of life. They don't have any sacred texts or anything like that. There's just this kind of theory of kami, which means spiritual energy, that there are kind of sacred spirits that are in earthly objects and in ritual experiences. And it involves shrines and kind of like, you know, sitting at the shrine and praying. And um, and anybody who, even if you don't know anything about Shinto, can, can recognize in Japanese and other Asian aesthetics a kind of minimal approach. I mean, even down to the type of poetry that we think of when we think of Japanese or Chinese poetry. Um, you know, our simple haiku kind of structures, just and the paintings, which are minimal and line based. It's a way of life. It's a way of thinking about your possessions, about your environment that shows respect for the environment, thanks the environment um, and the things for the things that they give you and basically inhabits it in a, in a not simplistic way, but a kind of mindful way. And so I think that there's a strong connection between her version of minimalism and Buddhist mindfulness ideas um, because of exactly that, living in the present moment, not worrying about the past, not trying to carry things forward from the past, not worrying about the future, but just living for now. Now, I mean, in America, minimalism goes way back, I think, at least to Henry David Thoreau. And in America, it always has to be associated with this conversation about consumer consumer obsessions, right? Consumer culture and the fact that Americans are just horrible at continuing to buy possessions, keep buying things, and when they break, just throwing them away. And uh, so minimalism in America comes out of that strand. Um, and, and then after that, everything just gets all really mixed up. So that's to make a very long story short. When it comes to Marie Kondo, her method is simple, and I really like it. But it's, of course, not easy, right? I mean, it's actually a very – some people have called it draconian, and we've, as we've been talking about, but it's it's not. But it is designed to change your thinking toward your possessions is the easiest way to describe it. It's organized by category. So instead of saying I'm going to start in the kitchen and then go to the bathroom or whatever, it just says I'm going to start with clothing, and I'm going to take out all of the clothes that I own. And go through them, I mean, literally take them all out and put them on the bed or on the floor in a big mound so that you're aware of how much stuff you have. Then hold each one in um, your hand, and, and if it sparks joy, then you keep it. So it's about what you keep, not about what you discard. But if it doesn't, then you discard it or give it away or whatever. And so the order is really important for her method, clothes, books, papers, then the miscellaneous things called kimono 
and then sentimental items. And uh, that's pretty much what it what it boils down to. So I won't go any on, on any longer than that. That's the basics. All right. Thank you, Christina. And I'm curious um, uh, about both of you ladies' experiences with, with minimalism generally and then also with uh, Marie Kondo's particular approach. Um, and as Christina did mention, uh, there, there is another podcast episode um, that the Sectarian Review did uh, specifically dealing with um, uh, minimalism. And so we're, we're not going to uh, duplicate uh, a lot of their efforts here. We're going to focus more on uh, Marie Kondo's particular approach. Um, but f- for both you ladies, would you consider yourself a minimalist? Yes or no? And have you actually tried uh, Marie Kondo's method, uh, either in part or in toto? Although she would probably say you can't do it in part. But um, but yeah. So, uh, Katie, have you have you are you a minimalist? Have you tried the uh, the method? I would never label myself a minimalist because I think that probably we have too much stuff for that. But I will say that um, probably my whole life I've been the kind of person who, you know, feels fine about and and quasi enjoys occasionally purging stuff um, from my life. Um, And I don't know if that's because even as a child, I was less attached to possessions than some people. Like when I was a kid, I would have um, like a stuffed animal that I would sleep with at night. But the times when I lost that stuffed animal, I, I, I didn't care. Like I would just get another similarly sized stuffed animal because for me, I wanted something to hold. I, it wasn't about like I hadn't imbued that with a personality. Um, I was also the type of child who enjoyed logistics and organizing so that one of my favorite games when I was a child was to get all my Barbies and to pretend that they were all trapped overnight in the big Barbie house that I had because of a blizzard. And then I would figure out where everybody would sleep because that was fun for me. I'm not joking. So, um, so I enjoy organizing. So even when I was a younger person, I would periodically pull out my big box, for example, of letters and um, cards and notes that I got from friends at school. And I would reread them and enjoy the messages. But I would also at that point go, I don't think I need that anymore. So that at a certain point, you know, in early high school, maybe I finally threw away all the notes from my middle school boyfriend that I used to be so attached to because I thought that's not part of my life anymore. I don't need that, you know. Um, and it helped that in me also that I moved a lot, um, not as a child, but when I was 14, we moved from my dad's job from Georgia to Arkansas. And after that move, when I was 14, I basically moved every four years since then. And I'm 35 now. Um, so, you know, anytime I moved, um, you know, I, I left Arkansas to go to college in Georgia and then um, my parents followed. Then they moved back to Georgia later, too. And then I was in college for four years. Then I went to, then I moved cities again to go to graduate school um, after five years in Athens. Um, David and I together moved to Kansas for his first job. And then we moved from Kansas to Texas. So with every move, I would find things packing for, you know, to, to move to go to a new place and go, why do we even have this anymore? What is what is happening right now? Why is this here? You know, um, and would always be kind of purging. And I would say, especially since we had kids, I've kicked it even more into high gear because they seem to accumulate so much stuff because people give them gifts. And um, I never turn down hand-me-downs. If anybody's ever willing to give my kids hand-me-downs, I never turn that down because kids' clothes are expensive. Um, But I, I, you know, so I, but that also creates a lot of clutter because I have all these clothes they're not even wearing because they're like a different sizes, right? And all different sizes. So um, that's kind of how I was up to this point. Now, then I will say for all those reasons, because I'm that kind of person, when I read um, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up in the last just two weeks, I had not really read or seen any Marie Kondo. We don't have Netflix. So I, I hadn't watched until very recently watched any episodes of the series either. So I read the book 
And I really, really liked the book. Um, and so I have been putting some of these things into practice, um, among other things, not that my kids clothes spark any spark that much joy for me because they're it's their clothes, unless it's like something I picked out for them or something they wore for a particular holiday. I realized that I was after reading Marie Kondo book, I realized that I had been holding on to a lot of those hand-me-downs and things that um, they were going to grow into later that um, I don't really think I would ever put on the kid. It's like I, w- I was thinking, but what if they need it? for play clothes or something. And then, you know, the other side of my brain, the Marie Kondo side perhaps would say, that's ridiculous. Like it's full of holes or, you know, like, so I realized I was kind of clinging to some things um, because I thought we might need them, um, which I think some things should be kept because you might need them. Some things we do need to like squirrel away because we might need them. Things like batteries, things like, you know, winter boots, even when it's summertime or something. But in this case, I was, you know, it it felt like security to haul around endless boxes of clothes that my kids are going to grow into one day. But by the time they grow into them, would I ever even put it on the kid? That kind of thing. Um, And I do think that the idea of keeping focusing, I love the ideas of focusing on what you want to keep, not what you want to throw out. I loved that. And I do think there's merit in the idea of keeping things that spark joy um, because because thinking about it in terms of sparking joy keeps me from doing that, but we might need it thing. Cause I can kind of say, well, if I'm only keeping it cause we might maybe one day need it, maybe that's not a good enough reason. Um, and I will say that also I, I didn't connect it at the time, but a couple of days after I read uh, Marie Kondo's book and she's talking about, you know, creating a sanctuary in your home and making a space that you feel like it's, is part of your ideal life. Um, I walked into the grocery store and I always see our Kroger has beautiful flowers. And I always think, oh, those flowers are so nice, you know, um, and David should buy me flowers. And a couple of days after I read this book, I walked in and I thought I should buy flowers because I like flowers and they will make my home more, you know, happy. And so you I go. bought myself some flowers and I put them in my bathroom. And you know what? Every time I go in there, I'm happy. I sparks joy. Right. Like, so I, I do think, you know, there's definitely a merit in um you know, living your life in a way that sparks joy. And I, I think, too, it can it can be good um, even extended out into the rest of your life. I think that so many things that we do, we do them not because they spark any joy, but because we feel like it's an obligation, something we we ought to do. And sometimes we do have actual obligations that we have to be fulfilled. But so often, I think particularly women take on things that aren't really necessary. But we, we, we you know, we worry about what's if somebody what somebody will think if we don't pitch in for that thing or don't do that, whatever. And, and there's been a lot of articles in the last few years, too, about the art of saying no, learning how to say no um, so that you don't overextend yourself. But I think sparking joy could also be a useful concept to extend to that area, you know, um, and, you know, doing things because they are you know, beneficial, not just so that someone won't think you're a bad person or something. Um, so that's, that was kind of a long answer. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I was predisposed to like Marie Kondo. And in fact, I did. That's the TLDR version of what I just said. All right. Thank you. Uh, Christina, what about you? Are you a minimalist and have you, have you con Marie to your house? <laughs> I am a minimalist wannabe is the best way to describe it. I am in complete agreement with the reasons why uh, she thinks this needs to be done and I want to do it. I just can't get over the hump. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And we'll probably get into some of them today, but at some point I am going to really go full hog, whole hog on her method because I think her method has some real genius to it. I read the book, I think a couple of years ago 
And then I thought, I'm just not ready for this right now. I just can't. I don't have the energy that it takes to do all of this right now. And, you know, when you're with in a family, it's really hard, too, because the sort of one sided nature of that seems dangerous and, you know, uncertain. And what does that look like? And I'm not sure her book completely works that out. So that's something that I'm thinking about. But I mean, ever since I was in college and found Henry David Thoreau and read Walden, I've been obsessed with simplifying my life because I recognize that it's right to say that if your life is cluttered and your space is cluttered, it's hard to think clearly. It's hard to be focused. And I know that to be true in my own life. And I've been more organized. I get more done. I'm more focused. I'm happier. Everything is better. Um, but I don't have ultimate control over my environment. I'm also worried about the desire to have ultimate control um, in my own self because that's a problem, a spiritual problem for me. But I do, I so would love to have that freedom from stuff. And so, I mean, at some point, probably even this summer, I will start it and really try to, to go the, the whole way. So that's where I would just describe where I'm at. I mean, that being said, reading the book, watching the show, I, I saw the episodes. I literally couldn't stop watching them because they fed some kind of need. I always get better at throwing stuff out. Um, but I, I have not gone the whole way yet. Fair enough. Uh, I would say sort of like you, um, it's more of an aspiration uh, than a reality for me at this point in my life. Uh, like you, I definitely can tell the difference being around clutter and not. Um, and part of that is I'm pretty sure everyone in my family has attention deficit disorder um, and uh, visual noise. Mm. I'm just very sensitive to the visual noise. It's, it's you know too much sensory input, I think. Um, and so just from, from that practical aspect, you know, a cleared off table or a clean, cleared off counter, it just, you know, I think I feel my blood pressure drop 10 points, uh, yep. whatever it, whatever the unit of measure is for blood pressure. Um, uh, if I'm, you know, looking at that and, and I, you know, raises 10 points if I'm looking at a pile of dirty dishes or a table full of paperwork or whatever. So I like the idea and I, I like a lot of the philosophical reasoning for uh, a lot of, minimalist um approaches i don't i don't really agree with a lot of what um uh, marie kondo seems to prioritize and i would not i don't think i would ever uh apply her method uh, in in its entirety there are aspects of it that i think are really helpful um but i just i don't think i would ever actually do the whole she says it takes six months on average i mean this is not a small investment of time it's you know once and done but it's a big once um so yeah, uh, and let so, me yeah. be perfectly clear. I'm not going to go all the way. I am never going to take my shampoo out of the shower, right? Oh my that, gosh, yes. You know, there's stuff like there are things that she suggests that will never fit me, right. and I'm, I think are impractical. Right. You're not going to unpack your handbag every day and put all of the contents of your purse away and then pack it I, up again. I don't, I that don't was use the craziest purse, part to me. Yeah, I'm a minimalist, and that's why I don't carry a purse. So yeah, if I, oh, yeah that was fine. Yeah. If I did that, I would never have my phone. I would lose. I would forget my driver's license. I would. Yes, it would be bad. Um, anyway, so, yes. Uh, all right. Well, let's go ahead then and move into our second segment um, of our podcast today. Uh, the reading segment, um, our text that we're examining is uh, the um, the life changing magic of tidying up uh, uh, Marie Kondo's book, informed to some degree by uh, what we've seen of, of the Netflix series, but primarily engaging with her book. Uh, to start off with, uh, we're going to talk about um, the intersection of or, or some of the, the 
the issues that you might see looking at Marie Kondo's approach through uh, through the lens of Christianity. And then uh, after that, we'll we'll talk about some feminist concerns as well. Uh, so um, Christina already alluded to one big difference. Uh, Marie Kondo is obviously coming at her uh, method from a very different theological viewpoint. Um, she uh, comes from I don't know that she explicitly identifies herself as being um Shinto, although, uh, as Christina pointed out, it's it's not exactly the same um, as some other religions in that respect. But she served, she does I think, mention it a couple of times, not that she's necessarily calling herself Shinto, but that she worked at a Shinto right. shrine. Yeah, she's right. very, yeah. Right. So she served at a Shinto shrine for, I think, five years, she said. So she's got a lot of experience um, with that, and it, it clearly informs her method. So we, we do want to be on the watch from the beginning, realizing that there are going to be very real um, worldview differences there, um, just based on where, where we're starting from. Um, also, in addition to, to the religious backdrop of her book, um, the way that she talks about her method is with a religious fervor. Um, the language that she uses to describe it, it could rival any kind of revivalist preacher um, or um, well, or any of the multi-level marketing pitches that you might see in your Facebook feed. But she's promising this will change your life forever. If you do this, nothing will ever be the same. You will never need to do this again. Um, uh, the language is, is, you know, tends to be almost salvific. Um, she promises you'll never backslide. Uh, and she, she lists a whole uh, host of of seemingly unrelated consequences that her clients have experienced. Like if you throw away your Rolodex, the people that you want to call will call you. Um, and <laughs> so there's a lot of anecdotes in there that, that, that clearly uh, I, I found myself being very skeptical uh, about the, the degree of, of certitude that she was um, making these promises with. So um, it, it definitely seems to be um yeah, I think it's more her religion than Shinto than Shinto uh, would be anyway. Um, and if you want uh, uh, some more information about some of the the um, the influence, uh, the Shinto Shinto influence, um, there is an article that we'll put in the show notes that Christina mentioned earlier, um, and that is uh, what white Western audiences don't understand about Marie Kondo's uh, tidying up, uh, and it's a, a Huffington Post article by Margaret Dilloway. Um, so uh, those are a couple concerns right away um, that, that I had reading the book. Um, obviously, we, we shouldn't be looking for anything to save us other than Christ. Um, and it, it really seems like from her perspective, the thing that saves her, the thing that saves her clients is uh, the KonMari method. Um, also, it, it, it for all of it being minimalist and and combating, helpfully, um, the uh, the American fascination with stuff, um, I mean, it's it's originally written in Japanese for for uh, uh, the Japanese market, um, and I, I believe because she had such a long wait list for her personal services, she wrote the book. Um, so I don't know that she wrote it uh, intending to to combat American materialism, but it certainly has that effect. However, uh, despite that, she still seems to be looking for happiness in her stuff. The, the the way that you are a joyful person and have joy is by surrounding yourself with things that bring you joy. Um, that that is how you become joyful. And so it still is tethering joy to your physical possessions and your surroundings, uh, which I think is something we want to be cautious about um, and uh, not necessarily completely dismissive of uh, because um, 
we don't want to disavow the value of physical possessions and our physical embodied life. We don't want to run to Gnosticism uh, as a way of getting around materialism, but uh, we also don't want to uh, find our joy in in our stuff, however awesome our stuff is. Yeah, I want to talk about that for just a second because sure. I think that it it's easy to think that that's what she's doing. Like this is really that my stuff is giving me my joy when I don't know. I think I read it as she's saying that the people who are stuck in this consumer mentality, like I got to buy more, I got to buy more, I got to acquire more are the ones who are thinking that their stuff is going to bring them joy. And to be free from that, you have to actually just be grateful for the things that you have and learn how to appreciate them. You know, so the joy comes from being able to be grateful for what you've got and not being on this hamster wheel of acquisition. So, but I mean, it's kind of tricky. And I, and I recognize why you're saying what you're saying, Alexis, because it, it seems like so much of the joy comes from the stuff because I think some of that is just her gifting as a person. Like that's what she's interested in is arranging stuff and cleaning people's lives out. But I, I it's funny because when I first read the book, I thought, my gosh, she's so judgmental and so mean. I wouldn't want to get to know her. And then I saw the Netflix show. I'm like, she is so great, you know, because she's so sweet and is just wanting to bring joy into these families, like to enjoy what they already have. Right. So does that make sense? I mean, it, it does make sense. I think I mean, I think there's a spot in the book where she basically is like the way to be a joyful person is to be surrounded by stuff that brings you joy. And and I True. agree that there is a way in which you become the sort of person that is that experiences joy from all your belongings because you recognize that even your most hated clothes cover your body and protect you from the elements or, you know, or whatever. Um, and you can certainly become more joyful as you become more grateful. But I, I really do think it seems like she's saying if you come into a room and everything in that room is stuff that brings you joy, that's how like you will be a joyful person. Mm, and it, yeah. it's certainly more pleasant to come into a room that's surrounded by only stuff that you like and it's in, in order. I mean, that's certainly more pleasant, but um, that, that just, and she, I mean, she talks about, not with this a little bit more, but she talks about struggling some socially and, and retreating in her stuff and surrounding herself with her stuff and being more comfortable with her stuff. That's true. Um, and, and with that Shinto influence of, uh, personifying her stuff. Uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know that it's technically right to call it animism, but, but there is a degree in which her stuff is, is her, they are her companions. They are her, um, yeah, they're, they're personified to her. Um, and so. That's I true. Think, like the socks are like, yeah, you know, we're, you're hurting us by not folding us and instead rolling us yep. into balls. Yep. Or your yeah, purse is tired. It's worked all day. Doesn't it deserve a break from carrying your stuff around? I liked when she said, um, she said, and you, you see it in different places too, that the kind of, that kind of Shinto influence come in too. When, um, there was a part in the book when, the part in the book where she talked about ch getting charms from shrines and how should you store your charms? And she's taking oh, yeah. care, taking care to say, well, if you've had them for more than a year, they're not in operation anymore anyway, and you need to return them to the shrine. Um, but also when she talked about, um, she said something like, uh, people have said to me, well, Marie, um, if I give away my possessions, isn't won't they curse me? Like, I guess a person would say that who's also thinking of the objects as alive. And she said, you know, personally, I think that if you have objects and you don't care about them in your house, they want to leave. They don't want to be there. Like, right. you know, so, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting how the idea of thinking, thinking that the objects are alive is um, 
how it affects or when she talks, she talks a lot of times about um, as you tidy the house, the house will tell you where things need to be kept. Yep. Or the stuff itself. You ask the stuff yes. where it wants yes. to live and you ask the house where it should live. Yes, yes. And, and which and in the most obvious way that comes through in the series is when they show her greeting the house because she always greets the house and kneels down on the floor and everything. And the music cracks me up. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's like, so funny. Oh, man. It's like it's like it's like the music they would play on like a TV show when there's like a serious moment and, and somebody's maybe been found with drugs in their room or something. Yeah. Like, that's what it sounds like to me. But well, it's, it's like it's really interesting how later in the series they start. They had less and less of her greeting the house like oh the, yeah yeah oh my gosh it's so long but i thought it was interesting in, in episode two the the people she's helping are of japanese descent but don't appear to be practicing any kind of shinto anything really because they you know that the, they're i mean they're people in their 60s whose parents brought them to america as They've children been fully americanized yeah um but they're the only ones they kneel down or they kneel down with her voluntarily it's like yes. it's almost you know and i i told david i wondered if in that episode if um, they talked about, oh, we speak just a little bit of Japanese. And I told David, I said, I wonder if they almost felt a little bit like their mom was there. Push, like, because she, you know, here's has a shown, shows up a lady who mostly speaks in all Japanese and she's telling them to clean their house or how to clean their house. And it made me wonder if a second for a second, if they felt like their mothers were back from the grave. That's um, it. That's a good point. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's very interesting. And when I was describing the book to my husband, he said, you know, this book sounds like half super helpful logistical ways of making your house more tidy and half just kind of weirdness like and i think but that's that's the shinto part that's the the kami mm -hmm. that's the part that feels so weird to us like mm -hmm. it just seems like you know woo woo craziness like somebody said in one of these articles but it's it's very serious for a yeah. person who feels that way and who believes in the kami the spirit of all the objects yeah i, well, really I think, appreciated that or, i'm sorry go ahead oh no go ahead I really appreciated the article that was talking about the otherness of Shintoism and how we need to just be careful of just quickly dismissing her, you know, and just letting her be her. Right. I, I really appreciated that because it's so easy as Americans to just be like, that's not right. But, you know, and I'm not saying that I think that my socks are feeling anything. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I, just, I just appreciated her perspective. You know, I thought it was refreshing. Well, and we're out of the habit of reading anything that's not designed for a Western audience. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this mm -hmm. is a translated book that was not like was written originally for the Japanese audience as evidenced by instructions on what to do with your expired charms. Like that's clearly exactly. not, not something that you know your average American is like, I was wondering how to deal with this issue. Um, it's not <laughs> for us. Like it was not for Americans initially. And we're not we're not in the habit of engaging with non-Western sources that are, that are not written for us. We're just, we're out of the habit of doing that. Yeah. Um, for that reason alone, I think it's a really useful book to read actually. It is. It is. And I think, well, I think it's yeah. a useful book. Uh, and I'll talk in a minute about some, some positive aspects. And I think even this materialistic, the, 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 the thread that's running through, I think there's ways to redeem that and to, to filter that and shift it slightly to make it um, actually work really well um, with a Christian worldview. Um, a, a couple other concerns I did have. Um, one is, and Katie, you sort of alluded to this at the beginning, that tension between wanting to be joyful but not making personal happiness the end-all, be-all, um, that that our ultimate goal is always to be happy or to be joyful yes. um, in in some sense, right? We 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 talk about the uh, the lasting joy that we have in Christ, but um, 
but not wanting to get rid of anything that gets in the way of your personal happiness. Um, and, and so I think there's a little bit of a concern there of this prioritization of you, the way that you be happy and have joy is by getting rid of everything around you that doesn't bring you joy. Including a spouse that you don't like, right? (laughs) Like, I mean, right. That's part of it. Like, well, this doesn't bring me joy. So bye-bye, you know, right. It's not, it's never that simple. Yeah. Um, so I have a concern about that. And then finally, um, the, the entire basis for her approach uh, is is self-oriented. Uh, it's all about you do this for you. Um, and, and there's there is a place for that. And certainly, like like Katie was saying, we, we all know women that that maybe should do a few more things for themselves. Um, and certainly women have been told to put themselves on the back burner a lot throughout history. Um, but this is a very different view than some of the the the. Um, types of minimalism that say are discussed in uh, another Netflix, uh, the Netflix documentary um, on minimalism, which was discussed in more detail in that sectarian review episode uh, where you talk about um, minimalism um, because of environmental concerns or minimalism because of, uh, you know, you want to be more altruistic and, and be able to give more, or you are concerned about, um, you know, other, other people in any way. Like it, it's none of her calculus is based on, other people it's all you and your stuff everything takes place in isolation you go and you commune with your belongings one-on-one to do this um and it, it's not something that's done in community i mean it is in the show obviously she's doing it with whole families and we're all watching and all of that but um but yeah there's there's not a whole lot of room of thinking about other people um and so yeah, Alexis, can I push back just for a second on yes. that? I would say the one place that you see uh, you do see a really strong concern for other people in the book is when she talks about how it's not okay to get rid of your stuff and to make your space better by pushing your stuff on other people, particularly in your family. She talks about um like she talks about how when she was young, if she found a shirt that didn't really look exactly right on her but she still thought it was really cool, she wouldn't want it to leave the house, so she would like basically kind of black emotionally blackmail her sister into taking all of her cast-offs. And she says in the book, like, this was wrong. This mm-hmm. was pretty, I think yeah. the word she uses is despicable. Yeah, she, she said, did. You know, it was wrong of me to try to salve my conscience when I didn't really want to get rid of these things, but I didn't want to wear them, but I didn't want to get rid of them either to push them on somebody else. And she says the same thing about people like sending their stuff, just sending their stuff out of the city to their parents' house. Mm-hmm. And she said, she says, you don't, you don't want to, don't, don't give them the burden of excess. That's what that's kind of mm-hmm. how she talks about it. So I do think you're right. I do think that the the pursuit of joy and of sparking joy is very self-focused. Um, but the one place I think that she gets it right in terms of um, thinking of others is the idea of, you know, what do you do with your stuff if you if you want to get rid of stuff or, you know, um, I also really appreciated um, and I know we haven't got quite got there yet. But to me, one of the things in the book that almost felt a little bit Christian, um, like she was edging, is when she talks about um, people always ask, how can I make the other people in my house tidy their stuff? And she says that the um, to, to quietly work away at disposing of your own excess is actually the best way of dealing with a family that doesn't tidy. That's right. Um, and to me, and I thought when I read that, I thought, man, it's like it's like taking the, the plank out of your own eye. Like that felt, you know, the, the idea that you would focus on yourself as a way of trying not to control others. Mm-hmm. Or as a well, way of, yeah, yeah. Like, or like the, the wife who's married to the unbelieving spouse, right? It's that oh, kind of yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you just, yeah. yeah do the right thing and then they will see by your actions. Right. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. 
So, I mean, I think those were a few areas where I felt like there was a little bit more. But I do think that you're right in terms of the main thrust of the book is about what sparks joy for you. I, w- I would agree with that. I agree with that as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's valid. I mean, they, she does she does want you to be I think sometimes sometimes she goes too far because she also doesn't even want you to let other people have the option of taking the stuff. They have to tell you in advance what they need, and if you find it, you can give it to them, but they don't get to shop your, like, your discard pile, um, which I have thoughts about. But um, anyway, to, to shift gears a little bit, because I know we've, we've got a lot to cover um, in this discussion, um, there are some positive aspects, I think, and a lot of this is just, like I said, slight tweaks on what's already there. Um, I appreciate the pushback on our American obsession with more. Uh, I like the idea of being content with less, realizing you don't need more, realizing that that's not where your satisfaction comes. It also doesn't come from having less. Um, and there's a great uh, piece in um, the Gospel Coalition uh, on their website by Megan Hill that talks about minimalism is not the gospel either. It's not what will ultimately save you. Um, but, um, but yeah, so not because a few special items give us joy, but because we trust God to give us what we need and, um, we, sh- and to help us make do with, without whatever we don't have. Um, so I think that contentment and the appreciating what you have, um, making do with what you have, that is certainly, um, uh, a, a worthwhile call for us to heed and should, should convict us, um, but ultimately remembering that, yeah, our, our contentment is not found in any of our stuff, but in Christ. Uh, and we have an eternal home with treasures stored up for us. Um, but anyway, so because this world is not our home, it makes sense to travel light. So minimalism and making do with less, all of that fits fine with um, with Orthodox Christianity. Um, I think there's there's a room if you slightly tweak some of the um, the animism or, or whatever you want to call it with with her relationship with physical objects, if you shift it slightly, you can end up with a a better, uh, almost a stewardship model. So you should know what you own and take care of it, not because you owe a debt to your stuff, but because it's been entrusted to you uh, by the ultimate owner and provider, and you are accountable for that. And so you should know, and if I've got boxes of stuff that I don't even know how many shirts I have, or I don't even know how many whatever it is I have, well, then how in the world can I give an account uh, to to the provider for how I'm stewarding those belongings? Because they're all mm-hmm. blessings. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. Um, so a lot of those ideas that she has fit with mm-hmm. uh, with Christian stewardship. Um, but again, out of respect for for God and His creation, um, not the the spirit of, of the item, which is a little tricky because we do that, right? We do talk about our car. You know, you get rid of your first car and you say goodbye to the car, or you say goodbye to the house you grew up in. Um, so we're not we're not immune to this personification of of objects. I mean, you watch Toy Story three and you feel terrible about every toy you ever got <laughs> rid of. Um, and, and God only knows what they're going to make us feel after Toy Story 4, but, um, so we can identify with that, but I think theologically we really should be thinking in terms of, um, responsibility to people who are involved in, in the creation of the item, uh, people who could use the item and, and ultimately the God who blessed us with the item instead, but it's still a lot of those principles running through it. Um, certainly gratitude. I appreciate, uh, again, not giving thanks to the item, but giving thanks for the item. Uh, and it's particularly useful as a way of letting things go uh, so that you can say, instead of feeling guilt, like you have to hold on to this thing because it's served you so well, 
um, to instead say it has served me well. I'm appreciating that. Thank you, God, for this car that has served me well or these clothing items that have served me well um, and yeah. I can let them go. Um, I so talk that about that for a second, because yeah. that to me was the most useful and productive part of the book for me when I first read it a couple of years ago. It really it really enabled me to let go of things that I would not otherwise have the ability to let go of because, you know, again, we just, we are racked with this guilt. We can't move forward. Somebody gave me this. And instead just say, you served this purpose for a particular time and that time has passed. And now I just need to let this go, right? Because it's actually holding me back. Um, I found that to be extremely powerful just to even actually say, thank you for your service, you know, goodbye. Uh, for whatever reason, because it didn't feel like so much of a waste. And and I think Marie Kondo is really concerned that you not think of like throwing out as like a waste, you know, um, she doesn't. And in fact, the whole point of this method is that you not be a wasteful person, right? Then in the future, you would not just acquire stuff that you already have four or five of, right? So that you would be moved to a different plane where you don't think about things that way, like as in not thinking about them at all, just acquiring them. Does that make sense? No, I think it makes, it makes perfect sense. Um, I think, I think I have a couple of questions about that because when she's talking about what people do with these garbage bags full of stuff, there's not a lot of discussion about like thinking carefully about how to dispose of it in no, the way that blesses true. the most people. Like it's not, that's Hey, this true. is new with tags. I know the domestic violence shelter could use more clothing or, or anything like that. No, I think that's there's, true. Although There's some mention say, of resale shops, but that's kind of it. Yeah, she's not. She doesn't go into it, but in the show, they certainly make an effort to give away to useful, you know, places for it. Um, oh, good. It's really, yeah, it's really funny that my uh, my TA who uh, who drew this little Conmari method of right uh, dealing with essays. I hope you all attach that to this show notes. A little cartoon. I don't know if you saw that. I I loved it. <laughs> Yeah. I did. It was great. <laughs> she told me, she said, one of the things that's so interesting about the success of this Netflix series is that it's really great to be a thrift shop shopper right now because there's so much stuff in the thrift stores stores because of Marie Kondo, because of the Netflix series. Like so many people are giving away their things that if you want to go and get some stuff, you can get some nice stuff. Right. Although I think I think we always like you said, so the goal here is to do this and then not have to do this again, because no. I know I mean, I'm just there's pointing like, out that that stuff is ending up in the thrift stores in a lot of right. people. Are, yeah. Right. But we, we want to make sure like that we still and this is not disagreeing with your point at all, but that we don't want to give ourselves permission to do this all over again because we're blessing the thrift stores because there's like container ships of clothing Absolutely. that end up other places. And there's there's just no. Yeah. There's not do it like nobody wants it. Even like the clothing, there's not even a yeah. market for some of the old clothing. So is that kind of in favor of her? Because she is not making that argument. She's not making a big deal out of like the whole point of this is to give it to somebody else. She's just saying the whole point of this is to change the way you think about stuff. Yes. So I think she is making that point. I, I could see the Americanization of this being I gave it all to a thrift shop. That's the sound to my conscience. And then. Is terrible, yeah. And then I can do it again because it's fine because I can do this good thing when I do the purge. Yeah, and, and that's just seeing... not understanding it. Right. The, the point is not to need the purge. The point is not that the purge is somehow helping society every time you purge, so it's good that you're acquiring more stuff because now you can donate more stuff. That's not the point. But I think I could see <laughs> with all of the, like, yay, look at all the thrift store stuff, I oh, could yeah. see the Americanization of that being 
buy more stuff, just make sure you give it away. Oh, yeah, because we ruin everything. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, so my, my big bottom line just on the, the theological stuff is to remember that our joy is in the finished work of and the, our union with Christ. Um, so all of this, like I said, you can take a lot of pieces of it and make them work. There's a lot of good practical, useful advice here that we'll talk about and practical concerns, too. But um, the big thing at the end of the day is don't don't look to your stuff to 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 find joy. Our, our joy is in Christ. Um, other thoughts from you guys on on the religious stuff or are we ready to start talking about feminism? No, I want to say one thing about the religious stuff. I have been doing a lot of research in mindfulness and, you know, most of the mindfulness things come from a Buddhist perspective originally, but it is so easy and indeed necessary to also, you know, view that from a Christian perspective. And there have been plenty of books that talk about mindfulness that that the whole idea of mindfulness doesn't necessarily have to be Buddhist, the whole idea of living in the present moment certainly does not have to be Buddhist. And and so I really strongly feel that there's a, a need for Christians to understand this idea of living in the present moment, letting go of possessions, and, and having that kind of simplicity. I, I, I think that that's step in step with our faith. And so I really hate to see any time where the baby is thrown out with the bathwater, right? Because there's a really good baby here, and we need we need to hear this. We need to to be sorts of people who can can um, stop living this harried kind of super busy, super acquisitive lifestyle, and just slow down, be in silence, own a few possessions, and and live more simply. Amen to all of that. I think I think right that our approach should be to examine and to take to take the good and to realize that there is good there to be taken and to be convicted by the things that other people are doing better than, than we are um, that are more in line with, with what we ought to be doing. So thank you for that reminder. Um, Katie, do you have uh, some, uh, something, some stuff to share with us about the feminist perspective here of, of Marie Kondo? What are some, some things that pop out to you putting in your, your feminist lenses? So, um, it's and it, the the feminist kind of perspective to me comes through a lot more in the TV show than in the book. Um, but really quickly, just to I want to kind of run through just a couple of things um, that have kind of been drifting around because, like you said, there's been a million articles on this um, recently, and there's a couple um, that I just wanted to mention, and then I'm going to kind of talk about a, kind of a distillation. But um, a couple of the ones that I looked at getting ready for this tonight um, that you had links you had given us alexis but one is called the emotional labor on tidying up with marie Kondo does not spark joy um and that was from romper and then there's another one um from vice that was called tidying up with marie Kondo is inadvertently about women's invisible labor um and the idea of emotional labor or invisible labor has has been very much in the news in the last couple of years and I, you you see it come to the fore um in various ways with marie Kondo. one that comes through in the book and the TV show um, is that primarily um, it seems to be an endeavor of women. So we were talking before we started recording listeners about how in the book she mentions various clients, many, many clients. I mean, she talks about a lot of different clients and experiences that she's had in her consulting business and all of the clients she mentions, except for possibly one is, was a woman. 
Um, and so it seems to be um, it seems to have been women who um, had been seeking her services the most um, in Japan and kind of had gotten her started in her business. And um, and, you know, I think part of that is coming from the fact that in cultures throughout the world, women have more. more it's been more traditional in most cultures for women to have been the, the caretakers of the objects in the home. Um, and you can see this on the TV show um, when, you know, she and one of the articles mentions this, that she um, will always usually to ask the 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 woman in the relationship, the wife, whatever, to um, tidy the kitchen and then will send the guy to, to tidy the garage. Um, except for one. Uh, now, there is one um, pair of men on one of the episodes um, who tidy the kitchen uh, two two gay men who tidy the um, kitchen together and they don't, there's no garage or they don't, they don't do the garage. Um, but uh, so Marie Kondo is not, doesn't seem to be, and these articles mention this too, but she doesn't seem to be trying to make a big statement about women's invisible labor or women's mental load or women's emotional labor. That doesn't seem to be um, a big thrust for her, um, you know, because we, I mean, we can see, you know, especially in the TV show that she's she's following, you know, fairly traditional lines for the domains of men and women. And um, so, you know, I, I think if there is a kind of feminist message that's happening, it, a lot of it is li like this article calls it inadvertent. Right. Or, um, you know, it, it's kind of happening as on the television show as you watch real people do the method that maybe that's a better way to say it so that I don't I would not say that that Marie Kondo's method as designed is is you know sexist or or anti-feminist or that there's you know and actually and I could see some ways in which her method just as a theory could be empowering for women because of the things that we've already been talking about things like you know choose a life that sparks joy for you um you know it, th yeah. living a life based on joy rather than obligation. Um, and also I think that, that, you know, following a method like this could be empowering for women in part because she, she says on the show over and over, the reason that you do sentimental things last is that they're the most difficult. And so you do all the other things first because that helps you hone your decision-making process and it makes you more confident so that when you get to the most difficult decisions, you've built all of that confidence. Well, I think just doing this at all um, is, could potentially help build the kind of confidence in a person to actually help that person develop more assertiveness and autonomy. I agree um, with that. Yeah. Can okay. I, yeah. Can I just jump in here? Cause Absolutely. I, think, I think the first episode of the TV series is brilliant for this, for these reasons, right? The it's the woman who is the one who is more cluttery. It's the man who wants to clean things up. And yeah, there's a traditional, like he works full time and, and indeed like 50, 60 hours a week. And, and she's staying at home, but it's quite clear that her attitude is kind of what's causing the problem and that they're a team and that he wants them to be a team in cleaning up. And then eventually they do become a team in cleaning up. So it's empowering them and, it, and it, it's equal, like they take on the tasks together and that that's the point of it is to take them on together. Right. And so I just found that so unbelievably refreshing. And I have to say that I, I've had a number of friends who they've been watching the first. I'm still trying to get my family to do it, but they won't do it. 
But watching the first episode with their family and that episode alone has changed things. Like one of my friends said, her husband said, I'm going to do the laundry now because you don't fold right. Now, is that not a victory for women? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that first episode generated so much conversation. Like I would say of the articles that I've read that because and and i think it was very it was polarizing because a lot of people watch that first episode and they're thinking they're they're saying this guy's an unbelievable jerk because to them they're 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 seeing it as you know because he's always gone from the house he he shouldn't be able to criticize right anything that's happening in the house or you know um and and he talks about it you know it it makes him angry that she pays someone to do laundry um when we could when we could be doing it ourselves and you can kind of or we read you. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and in that case, maybe, we, you know, we is maybe you. I think he also said he wanted them to do it together. And by yeah. the end of the episode, they are doing it together. Yes, I, that's true. I, I think to me, the one that made me sad, the episode that made me sad and the one that that I think you feel this emotional labor and visible load thing the most is I think it was episode three. But it was the one with um, black mom and dad and two kind of preteen kids, like 11 and 12 years old. And they had downsized from like a four bedroom house to like a t- tiny two bedroom apartment. And that was the and, and basically, listeners, what happens in this one is they've moved and mom is the only one who knows where anything is in this house. And and like and so mm-hmm. the dad and the, 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 the preteen kids, if they need anything, they find her. If she's not home, like the little boy straight up says, I can maybe look for my stuff myself, but but it's easier. Yeah. I, I just I just blow up her phone until she answers and she tells me. And Isn't the, this that, so true, though. Well, it is true. But, it, you know, and that mom, her drawers were clean. Her drawers were organized. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But everybody else's stuff was all over the place. And um, that episode was very sad to me because she was, to me, very self-flagellating. Like she kept oh, saying, I totally like, agree. I, I'm dropping the ball. It's the mom's job to create memories and I need to be handling it. Oh, and yeah. I, it, uh, That was a torturous episode to watch. It was so hard to watch. And the thing is, it wasn't even I mean, her husband didn't seem like a mean dude. He wasn't being ugly about it. He wasn't complaining. It was more just the the it, it, I think. And, and I, I enjoyed it. because mom guilt. Yeah, the mom guilt, but also that they were all expecting her to. That's that, and that's the invisible labor, by the way. Like, um, my husband said, what? My husband said, what is invisible? Invisible labor is when you you're working but nobody sees you. And I said, no, invisible labor, if you want a real definition, is supposed to be the mental burden of being the one who knows where everything is, the only one who knows the the whole schedule, the you know, like that that kind of stuff. That mom, that episode, as hard as it was to watch, I enjoyed because by the end of it, that dad and those two older kids, because they're old enough to help around the house, they all realized basically the enormous load that she has had been carrying, being the only one who knew where everything was. Like they finally figured it out. They finally not all on her. You know, no, or that it shouldn't be. I mean, that know, shouldn't and, be that. Yeah, yeah. And and so that that I think was was what the big episode for me of kind of revealing that that kind of, you know, invisible load or whatever you you want to call it. But another thing that I wanted to say here, and I keep thinking about this, I've been thinking about it even before Marie Kondo. But I think one problem that you can see on this show, not not in the book, I don't, Marie Kondo doesn't talk about this, but on the TV show and something I think that you see in all these articles about invisible labor and whatever invisible load is that often there's not really in, in discussions about that. There's not dis- distinctions being made. Um there aren't things to be made between women who are 
not working at all outside the home and women who are like working full time outside the home. Because, um, you know, like one of the articles that I read and one of the ones that I think we linked, um, but I don't remember which one it was, was talking about how um, it's 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 frustrating and wrong. She's arguing that um, for a husband to act as if his wife is management and he's just an underling. And so, you know, it's wrong for him to never do anything unless she asks him. But when I read that, I'm thinking, OK, but to me, since if I'm not working at all, um, which I'm, I would say I'm not right now, because when I'm teaching online, that takes me like an hour at night after my kids are in bed. But like if I'm if if I'm, you know, which I am, I'm a full time mom. So to me, um, I would see myself as management in my house because I'm the manager of the household. So to me, it's not offensive that my husband would wait for me you know, to sometime, wait, some not all the time, but that he would like, you know, wait for me to assign him something to do or ask him to do something is not offensive to me because it is my job to manage the household because that's my literal job. But so often in these these discussions of women's invisible labor and things like that, often the, the writers are talking about women who are also working full time, but they don't ever actually say that. It's like assumed like you get that they're that they're supposed to be talking about women who work. Um, full time because I, you know, I would agree with a lot of these articles about invisible labor that, yeah, if you have a, a husband and wife in the home and they're both working full time and that man is still expecting that woman to do almost all of the housework, that's wrong. That's not OK. And there needs to be a more equ equitable distribution of labor, um, you know, but um, and in the first episode of the TV show, that was one thing that frustrated me is that. They were talking about that woman as if she was a stay at home mom, but thrown yeah. into the first five minutes is the fact that she was working three or four days a week. She was yeah. working part time. Like, so yeah, she and you know what? Like, it, you know, yeah. It's anyway. also true that they don't have uh, an example of a woman working full time with a man and staying at home in that whole six years. And yet they have two gay couples right out of six episodes. There are two gay couple features featured mm. and not a, a home where. The man is, which is what I've got right now. My husband's underemployed and I'm working full time. That wasn't one of the homes. Mm, and that's, you know, and, and maybe it should have been because I do think that's more and more common now. And I would say it that's is. true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when when and so that's, I think, something that that's something that needs to be brought to this whole discussion of, of mental load and invisible labor is a kind of um, maybe more of a definition, not a definition of terms, but um, a more of a clarification of what are you talking about? When you're when you're talking about the, you know, in, invisible labor and, and all of that. And, you know, um, and another thing I should say, by the way, too, is that um, the whole idea of um, separate spheres or whatever, um, that is something that you see a lot more even. I mean, I would say uh, for obvious reasons, you see that even more in the complementarian world um, because, you know, more I would say more women in the complementarian world tend to um, embrace the stay at home mom thing um, or at least or, or you see more people who feel like that's really important, um, nigh theological. Um, I you know, it, it, it you do see a different uh, kind of rhetoric there about, you know, helping out around the house and things like that. But um, but I do think that um, another problem that is happening with all of this stuff. And, and I don't know if you see it a whole lot on Marie Kondo either, but um, as soon as I think, too, you have men who grew up with moms who didn't work outside the home at all. And so they had lots of time to keep the house to a certain standard. Then those men grow or, you know, those little boys grow up and they marry women who do work. Um, and then subconsciously, I don't think they do it on purpose. I don't think they're trying to be jerks, but they keep expecting the same type of house that they grew yes. up in. 
without yes. ever thinking how much more time did my mom have than my wife? Yes, has. yes, like, my yeah. life. Okay, yeah, so it's hard because I think, you know, and again, I don't think that often I don't think that's intentional. It's all about unspoken expectations it's or even It's not intentional un- at all. Yes, it's not. And so I think that's the thing that that's why I think that discussions like this need to be had at least between spouses with a lot of charity. As you get that happened to me one time. I got really frustrated with my husband when when our first kid was a baby because he only was like changing diapers when I asked him to or something. And I'm like, he should just I, why doesn't he just step yeah. in and do it? And I and I kind of had to stop and had a dialogue, have a dialogue with myself and go, hold on. He wasn't it, ever modeled that. Yeah. What were his models like when I don't know? I mean, I you know, like I'm still I'm not totally sure how his parents are doing it. But like I because I, 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 don't, I don't even know that I had to ask. But all I had to do is say to myself, hold on. If that's how it was in his house, if his dad changed diapers when asked, then he feels like he's doing well, you know, because exactly. that's the model that he. And so I think that's another thing you see happening on the Marie Kondo series is I, you know, some of these men, I, I think probably are, they're, they're a product of their, their raisin, as David's granddad would say, right? Um, and, um, you know, it's, so you have to, you have to keep that in mind. And I think that, um, in the book, she doesn't really touch on a lot of that generational stuff. The, you know, I mean, she, she kind of gives some lip service to, at the beginning to the way that you tidy as a result of, of your family, like how you were mm-hmm. taught or not taught. And on the TV series, there's definitely a stress on involve your kids in this so they learn how to do it, which I appreciate mm-hmm. it, too. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening here um, in terms of feminism. But so much of it, I think, is that kind of personal and interpersonal stuff um and emotional stuff not so much you know more what we might think of as more official feminist issues um though you know probably the most kind of political thing you could say about this is that she that you know there are some things you could say about unpaid labor and you know um and the idea of if you have a house in, you know, in, in what happens if you have like, you know, she makes all these couples on the TV show do it together, which that was one thing that I did appreciate too. another invertent blow for equality is how many of the guys on the show. I mean, I just kept seeing it happen who simply in, you know, the fact that Marie Kondo shows up grinning, adorable and says, you will also be part of the tidy. Like she doesn't give them a choice. She says, you will do this. together. It's so and, good. But we're doing it together. Then they say things like like the guy in the first episode says, I just realized my family gets the worst of me at the end of the day. Yes, yes. Or, or, or the 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 guy, the dad in the tiny apartment where only mom knew, knew where anything was. He was like, you know, he, he had similar realizations. I need to yes. help out. I need to, you know, I want to do my part. Like so, simply just having them work, like you said, Christina, having them work together as a team was accomplishing some things that you know was accomplishing more maybe than any conversations about unpaid labor and emotional work might have done between those spouses. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. Anyway, but that's all I have to say on that. What did you guys think? Anything feministy come up for you? Well, I think we have, you know, the thought of the issue of women's and bodies and how much they change and what do you do with clothes? Cause at the outset, I mentioned that I have my own reasons for not being able to go whole hog with the, the method and it starts with clothes and I don't know what to do with my clothes because since I had menopause, I just keep gaining weight and I would like to wear my other clothes, but you know, what about those? And I cannot, I literally cannot go through my closet and say this sparks joy. This doesn't because that sparked joy when I fit into it, but I don't fit into it now. And I'm hoping to fit into it, but I probably won't, but maybe I will. That issue is never addressed. 
probably the same thing for for women who've had kids. So I've got some, or or, or not even having kids. So there's there's the actual physical bodies, but then there's also like the life change. So like uh, the life stage you're in. I have stuff that I wore when I was a, a an attorney working in Washington D.C. and it is super cute and I love it. And I look at that and I'm like, that makes me happy. Mm-hmm. I can't wear it. I've had two kids since then. I live in a small town. If I wore that stuff, I would look ridiculous mm-hmm. in my small rural community. So, and maybe I don't completely understand the sparking joy. Maybe if I were better at it, I would be able to discern between what I feel looking at the super cute day dress from five years ago and that that's not joy. But but you have those life stages that you're at uh, or baby clothes that still spark joy for you, even though your baby is six and can't wear them. Um, but you remember them wearing it. Um, and so, so some of those things where you have the, the life chain, the life stage has changed or your body has physically changed. You've had kids and for women particularly, and I don't know if this is a case in Japan, but in America where yo-yo dieting is such a common thing and people are changing sizes left and right. And even if you're not yo-yo dieting, let's be real. Every four weeks, you probably go through a range of sizes, um, yes. you know, for, for women yeah. who are still experiencing the, those hormonal changes. Um, and certainly then, as, as you said, Christina, even when, when some of those hormonal changes are, are different, you have other effects on your body. I mean, I don't know any men who know what fat pants are. Oh, no, they don't. They don't, you know, and so, so, and no, so, so like you to do is stop, change one thing, and then they drop the weight. It's so easy for men to, to lose weight. Let's face it. It, it, there, it's there's also that. Yeah, it is a bummer. And, and then sort of related to that. So you have the like, what do I do with a closet full of stuff that, doesn't fit me, but I hope it will fits me now, but I don't love it. Um, you know, do I buy stuff that I love that fits me now with money that I somehow have? Yeah. Even if I don't. Um, and can I even find things that I love that fit me now? Because for a lot of women, depending on the size they are, the options are not great. Um, if you're in a smaller community where you don't have as many retail options or you have a limited budget and you can't buy some of the, the boutiques that are particularly catering to women who are outside of sample sizes, um, there, there are some very practical. Yeah, no, this uh, is this is not easy. You know, I no. mean, I when I lost weight after having my baby, I only had one baby. I was married late. <laughs> I lost weight, finally got down. It was a really hard battle, and then I gave away my entire like extra weight professional wardrobe, and then I hit menopause, and then I wish I had it back. You know, because it was pr- a professional wardrobe that cost me a ton. Now I have enough money to actually replace that. It, and with just a, kind of like a slight annoyance, but for women who don't have the money to replace that, that's a real issue. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I mean, it's you're right that it's a twofold thing because it's it's a practical consideration, but you could potentially see it as a as a feminist issue. And it is interesting, like you said, um, Alexis. Maybe it's I mean maybe it's different in Japan. It is interesting because she's a woman that she never ever mentioned that, you know, that she never even talked about like. Maybe you might need to keep some clothes around her. I, I remember um, feeling very finding it very refreshing um, years ago. I read there was some article and I don't remember how long ago it was, but I remember exactly who it was. It was actress Eva Mendez did some interview where she talked about how she keeps clothes in her. She, you know, in her wardrobe, she has clothes that will fit her if she's at any point within a 10 pound range. And she said, because, you know. I'm not the same size. Like she basically talked about that. I'm not the same size every day. Like I try to keep my, I don't, I don't have an ideal weight. That's one number. I have like a range because it varies wildly. Like, and I remember loving that and thinking that's really great. Cause that's how it actually is, you know? Um, 
And so given that it seems to be such a common experience, you would think that maybe Marie Kondo would talk about that. Or at the very least that one of these women on the TV show, and you can tell me, Christina, if, if maybe it happens near the end of the series. I only saw there the first is, four episodes. There is a woman who complains okay. about that, but they don't do anything about it. Like, There's no real addressing of it. That's frustrating. Um, you know. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and you know. It's um and and it's also true I think that you there is a disproportionate pressure on women to have clothes certain clothes to look pretty or to look I don't know like fancy or something you know for a special occasion you know if 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 David and I go somewhere dressy like for lack of a better word there's a very there's a nigh indiscernible difference between his work clothes because he's a te- you know he teaches at HBU so he wears like a slacks and a button down shirt yes. and like fancy clothes but there's yes. a world of difference between you know oh, yeah. like yeah and so so I do think that there is there is a, a kind of disproportionate um, women need more different kinds of clothes that's a better way to say it um, yeah and it's funny because when I was thinking about it tonight when I was or this afternoon when I was rereading the book and I was thinking about my closet and thinking about going through it and I in my mind's eye, saw the three dresses. I never wear dresses. I hate dresses. I wear pants. Okay. I saw the three dresses with their price tags still on them that I have so that I can go to that wedding or that whatever that that will be demanded of me. And those do not spark joy. I paid money for those. I do not want those. I bought them because I have been stuck without a dress before that I needed, you know, you know what I'm saying? So the, the method doesn't fit that. Well, I think that the method, and this is sort of bleeding a little bit into just the practical considerations across the board, but the method doesn't fit the stuff that you need, but that you don't love clothing and, and otherwise yes. um, where you're like, you know, I don't like, so I have, I have, you know, or I mean with the wardrobe, you can say like, I don't know that I've ever had enough pieces that I love that sparked joy that would have constituted a whole wardrobe. I can't wear all statement pieces and I can't wear all accessories and I can't wear all, you know, whatever. Like it's, it's never, it's never been enough, I think, even for, for a, even for a capsule wardrobe. But then there's all the other stuff that you own, uh, that you need because it serves a purpose. And people make, have made the jokes on Twitter, like, oh, I got rid of my mop and I got rid of my, you know, uh, various cleaning supplies or I got rid of, any number of functional items. And she, she mentions at one point a rubric for determining value. She mentions it just in passing, and she talks about taking into account physical value, function, uh, information, like does it contain information you'll need, um, emotional attachment, and then rarity, like are you able to get another one if you need it? Uh, although not from a financial perspective, like is there another one? It is what it sounded like, not can you afford another one? Um but she doesn't do anything with that. She continues to just be parked on, does it spark joy? And my house is full of stuff that I don't think it would be responsible of me to get rid of. Uh, because like you said, you got, you got to go to a wedding. You do need to have that. Or, um, you know, you do need to have, I don't even know what a good, another good example would be, but stuff that you need to have. Or, or if you have kids, you may have stuff that it's, you may want to hang on to it because you've got, an item that's between kids. It's a size that neither of your kids is wearing, but one of them is going to come up to it. Or it's a toy that's too juvenile for the older kid, but the younger one might really like it in another six months. Um, so I think that, that that was one of the things I had issues with is I felt like there was this other category of stuff where sparking joy isn't why it's there. Not everything in my life is there to spark joy. So it doesn't seem like a good basis for deciding what to keep with regard to those items. 
I think that's a weakness of the method too, you know, um, because she talks about, you know, and cause she gives tips in the book for organizing things like chords, like, you know, random extra chords or, you know, I mean, she talks about things that to me are obvious, not sparking joy things. She talks about how to store those things or how to, you know, how to, how to um, keep them in a place so that they're organized and all that stuff. So clearly, you know, she's not saying that, you know, you should live some kind of like we talked about hedonism, that you should live some lifestyle where, you know, you only have things that make you happy 24 seven. But then you're right. She should there should be something, some discussion there about, you know, what about if something doesn't make you happy, then how do you decide if you should keep it or not? <laughs> you know, because some things I mean, you know, some things don't spark joy for us and, you know, we should probably get rid of them. But there are other things that are needed, like you said. And now, Alexis, you're right now. I'm trying to think of an example of something that we keep because we need it. Um, well, and, yeah, you know, like, I mean, you know, I, I the best example I could think of would be something like. Like, well, here in Houston, winter coats, mm. like. We like like really thick coats. We almost never wear them. Like so, if I'm thinking of how useful is something, or even does it make me happy? Like you know, the winter coats. Prop the winter coats we keep for the kids. They don't make me happy. The kids don't particularly like them. Whatever. And yeah, in Houston we might use them once every three years. But I kind of feel like we should keep those because on the one crazy day when there are snow flurries in like two years, my kids are gonna want to have those coats. Because they want to go, you know what I'm saying? So it's it's one of those mm-hmm. things where sometimes we, you know, we keep things um, because they might be necessary and they really might be necessary. Yeah, you know, and, you know yeah. I, have, I have balanced all of that with the, a really famous quote by a man named William Morris that I have posted up. You know, the quote is, have nothing in your homes that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. And if you know those coats to be useful, like they're you've used them in the past when it's gotten really cold, then that answers that question. Right. And, and so I I love, yeah, I love that. That's great. Putting that, putting that quote kind of with Marie Kondo's method is something that I can kind of get my arms around because, and and this is really the great thing about that quote. It says no to be useful. It can't just be like, I think I might use it. Maybe whatever, you know, no, I've used this. It's useful. I know it will be useful for me to have a dress when I'm invited to a wedding. You know, I know that's going to be useful. Well, I think that ties into another another question that I wish she would ask in the book, and that is, could this be a blessing to someone else right now more than it sparks joy for me? So, like, there might be something in my house that I really like, but it doesn't really serve a purpose, um, and it could serve a purpose for someone else. So... Um, and I, and I think about this too, like with, with kids toys, like we just had a, a family move into the area from, uh, from Kenya and they, you know, came over, they have two kids and an, another one that was just born since they moved here and they came over with you know, a couple suitcases. Well, that was a great opportunity for me to look at all of my kids stuff that I've got and to say, you know what? Yeah, maybe I'll need this again. M- maybe, maybe I'll, you know, want, wish that I'd held onto this for my kids one day, but there's someone who could use it today. Um, and that was a really helpful way to think about it. So not just like with clothes that I can't wear anymore to think, well, maybe I maybe I'll get back to that size eventually to say, you know, maybe. But in the interim, in the interim, however many months or years that takes, if it ever even happens, mm-hmm. could I be blessing someone else? Is there someone else who needs a suit to interview in or yeah. who needs a day dress or who needs a whatever it is? Um, and 
And instead of assuming, as I think it seems like Kondo, uh, Marie Kondo is assuming, that I can just buy a new one if I need to, because I can't. That's not mm. a position that I'm in, depending on what the item is. Uh, but to trust that God will provide. Because when we had our kids, people came out of the woodwork to give us stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I can give to someone else in my community who's in need, who has you know has this family and they need toys for their boys and they need clothes and all of that, and trust that if I'm ever in a position where I, I need that stuff and I wish I hadn't gotten rid of it, that God is capable of using his church and his people and even people who aren't his people to meet the needs of, of those he cares for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have loved to see, I realize she's not going to view the, the theology of it that way, but to think not just, does this make me happy in my heart of hearts, but do I know someone else? Mm-hmm. Do I know of a ministry in my town where this could be, doing more good, sparking more joy, serving yeah. more of a purpose for someone else than, than it does for me. Yeah. And here's you know, Alexis, where I think, go ahead. I was just going to say that actually happened to me. Um, you were talking about, um, this was maybe a year or so ago. You were talking about having clothes that don't fit anymore or from a different part of your life. And I had kind of a whole box of clothes that were both of those things because they were my clothes that I used to wear when I first was, when I first was teaching college students and I was teaching full time. Um, so they were like work clothes, like really nice slacks and, you know, like cute tops and whatever, all those things that you talked about. And, um, they were like two or three sizes ago, right? Because this was before I had babies. Um, and I, I had been thinking about those and I kept thinking, well, maybe I'll keep them because if I ever am that size again, I could use, them but then um someone at church knew a family who's i think their house burned down and they lost everything and the lady who and she had put on our church ladies page like the you know if you have any stuff that can help this family let us know and she wrote it all out and the mom in that family was the the exact size of all those clothes in my box and you know what she needed work clothes for monday because she worked she works an office job and she like she right. had to, you know, and I was like, you know what? No, they're all the clothes are going. And I put them all in a box because I thought they're not doing me any good here. They're sitting in the closet. Their serving comes up. Maybe they're serving some kind of emotional need, but maybe they're dragging me down. And maybe they need I need to, you know, say, say, make my peace with that part of my life. Because that was the other thing is I kind of finally said to myself at that point when I don't I realistically, I don't know when I'm going to be teaching full time again. And that was hard. Like that was hard for me to to, yeah. to, you know, to face that. But that enabled me to send that stuff on to somebody who could use it immediately and it make a big, you know, and it probably hopefully it made a big difference for her. Like it made her yeah. mind easier. She didn't have to worry about it. So, I mean, Alexis, you're so right. Like that is a great point. And that's something mm-hmm. that um, that is not here. And, you know the life-changing magic of tidying, really. Wouldn't it be great if that were always the case? Where I mean, I think the Internet is actually maturing to a point where that's going to be more possible because of these kind of next-door apps and things where people can actually say what they need, you know? Because <coughs> yeah. when there's that immediate, like, Katie, that would be like a no-brainer for you, right? Like, there's an immediate need for this, and I don't Absolutely. have a need for this. And in my case, my mother-in-law just moved here from Tennessee and she in and the coat that I used to wear that that I don't fit anymore since I hit menopause. No brainer. Give it to her. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I wish that that was, was that easy, that we could actually, you know, find a way to immediately give it to people that we knew would need it. Well, and that actually fits into another question I have about minimalism is the, the role of the community. Like I said, she, she's sort of talking about you you and your stuff figuring this out together. But I do wonder, like, if if the idea, and it doesn't seem to be the idea for her. It seems to be you if you find that you need the thing you got rid of, you either do without or you get it again. 
Um, but what the role is of the community and specifically borrowing uh, from other people and to what degree are people just we, we don't want to be minimalist and, and just the end result be that we outsource ownership of stuff to other people. Right. So she specifically you know, discourages you from shipping all your stuff to your mom. But if I get rid of my ice cream maker and just trust that I have some friends who are not minimal enough, minimalist enough to get rid of their ice cream makers and I can just borrow one from them. And just does the whole system like I don't want to create a system that depends on there being people who don't abide by the system because otherwise it collapses. Um, it reminds me of in the Netflix documentary on minimalism. Uh, one of the guys they talked to like lives out of a backpack. He has like 50 items to his name. And I was like, yeah, but he knows people who own couches. Like he, he, like yeah. he yeah. has to know mm -hmm. people who have dishes or who have stuff um, that there's a degree to which, or like there was a couple that they, that they talked about and the guy was minimalist and the girl wasn't. And it was like, well, that's great for you. Like anything you need. Um, she can probably supply it. But um, like, I want to, have a system that works that would still work if everybody did it. Um, and so I, I have questions about how what that looks like. And the specific thought I had was um, was either borrowing if you do it informally or community libraries, not just for books. But I, I have a friend who lived overseas in New Zealand for a while and they had toy libraries and you would go check out toys every week and then return them and you didn't have to own them. Or um, I have another friend who's a pastor uh, up in Portland um, and they have a kitchen tool library that their church has set up for people to check out kitchen tools, um, which I would so love to be in a community that had that. Um, but that freedom from needing to own the stuff, but still having access potentially to it without the, the um, having to re repurchase it. Um, and that seems like it would work really well if you have a tight knit community where you can either borrow or have a big enough community to have an actual formal library of items. You know, that just does, doesn't it speak directly into one of the weaknesses of American culture, right? The failure of community or isolated individualism, you know, the fact that we don't even know our neighbors, that just speaks right into it, doesn't it? Because we could all have a lot less stuff if, if we had a little bit of a, even just a tiny bit stronger sense of community. Yeah. I mean, I know in bigger, in bigger cities, there's enough demand. You will actually have businesses that will like, so when I lived in Washington, D.C., the hardware store did a brisk business in renting out, uh, you know, yard equipment because nobody had room to store a weed eater or mm -hmm. a rototiller. Um, and so you could rent one for the weekend or for a day or whatever. Um, in a small town, there's just not going to be enough demand for that. Um, I recently read uh, Ben Sass's new book, uh, Them, and he talks in there about the, the coming economy shift being basically a rental economy of you need a drill, you essentially Uber a drill. Um, and nobody needs to own anything anymore. And, uh, and so there's ways it could be, I mean, there's ways people are figuring out how to do it apart from those relationships. If you're in a big enough community for there to be a demand to make it financially viable. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I like the idea of it being a community. I like the idea mm -hmm. of it being the church or your friend group or the local library also has a toy library. Um, because then, yeah, I don't have to have the pressure because I can I can borrow the canner from my neighbor or I can. Um, yeah, we can we can swap items or get together and cook together using our shared tools or right. whatever. Right. And I've well, heard of some churches doing that. Having, you know, websites and things where they can share things. The beauty, too, of that of the sharing and the community aspect of it is that it also can 
um, enable you to it's the only way to me you can find some kind of middle ground between discarding and keeping so yes. that, you know, um, like there are I had a friend who was recently pregnant and I um, I asked her if she wanted to borrow some of my maternity clothes. Um, and, you know, because I am not ready to discard those um, clothes in part because, you know, we don't know. I mean, we don't know how big our family is going to be, you know, and like. Um, but I don't need them taken space up in my house right now because I'm not currently pregnant. And if so you get you rid know, of them, you will get pregnant. That's the rule. And that's the rule, right? I know exactly. <laughs> so yeah. So what do I do? Well, I ask a friend if she would like to borrow them. She was happy to have them. So right now, you know, so they were living at her house, you know, during her pregnancy, but I know that I will eventually get them back. So I felt free to, to loan her even my very favorite maternity dresses because I know I will see them again. They'll come back around when she's done with them. She'll bring them back to me. And then if I ever do need them again, I'll have them, you know. And so I, I think that, that that's kind of nice too. the the idea of sharing um, is that, you know, uh, my my things can be of joy to someone else. And then, you know, as a, I guess as opposed to giving away for sharing, then you might get to see that again. And so maybe it helps you to hold hold your possessions a little more loosely, but still hold them, still be able to know that. Um, you know, they might they might come back again one day or something. I don't know. But um, but I think all of those things you guys have been saying are so true that, you know, you can there are so many ways that um, objects can connect us. And if we're only ever thinking about or concerned about our own objects and kind of making ourselves islands, then it, it's a problem, I think, particularly for Christians. Well, and it fits with the idea of stewardship, too. Right. We're entrusted with those items like you're you're entrusted with your maternity clothes by God. Um, and are you using them in a way that blesses other people made in his image or that glorifies him? And, well, which is a better use as a steward to keep them in a box in case you need them or to have them actually be serving a purpose and blessing another human being made in God's image? Exactly. Um, now, that's 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 not counting the ones that like the leggings that I'm totally still wearing because of all the things we talked about before about body changes. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, sure. that's, that's a given. Sure, sure, sure. Well, um. We've been talking about this for a while, so I wanted to, to try and wrap things up, but I want to give everybody sort of one last shot. If there's something else you really were dying to talk about with this before we move on to passing on. Well, we have to talk about books because, okay. you know, books. Sure. <laughs> Who can have the view that Marie Kondo has of books? You know, and it's been, I've, I've seen the funny meme going around where it's like, well, you know, Marie Kondo says you should keep about 30 books. And then it says, what, on your bedside table? And right. that's kind of the way that I view it. But again, I'm also a professor. So and she gives room for that, you know, that if you're a scholar, that, you know, books are going to have a different place in your life. But all of my books spark joy, but they're a mess. And I do have them piled up, uh, you know, huge bookcases, but also piled up on the side of the of the room. And that's that that mess stresses me out. So that's just not going to be an easy thing for me to solve. Right. And there's a piece off to, to make sure I figure out which one it was, because I know there were a bunch that I looked at uh, that basically talks about sparking joy is not a good rubric to use for books because the books that you haven't read or books that affected you in other ways that don't spark joy, like they were really difficult or they challenged you right. or, or any other relationship you can have with a book. Uh, to be fair, in her 
in the book, she seems to primarily be dealing with informational, like, texts and manuals yes. and, and things. Because at one point she experiments with, like, taking out the chapters or sections that she likes. Oh, my gosh. Um, ripping the pages out of the books. I was yeah. dying. <laughs> yeah. She, she, to be fair, she said that did not work, and that is not what she advocates. <laughs> oh, it's a horrifying anecdote, but it's not actually part of the method. Um, yeah, she's not really so, a fiction reader, it seems like. No. No, it's obvious her relationship with books is different than a lot of folks would be. And so um, I think, yeah, that's just one of those parts where I go, yeah, I appreciate what you're saying, but that's I'm not going to be doing it that way with that particular litmus test. And I had paused, too. Um, or, or Well, I should say one of the, one of the re- other reasons I had paused about the book thing is that I've read so many studies in the last couple of years about the positive effects on children simply of living in a house where yeah. they see lots of books. Right. Those two. And, and I kept thinking about that. I thought, I don't think we'll ever get rid of even books that we never read in part because our kids see that the books are there and it's important. But I will also say that after I started reading Marie Kondo, that David actually did go through and actually did go. Cause I, I thought there's no way all the books we have clearly are important to us because we've kept them through, you know, what, two or three moves. Well, then David went through our shelves again and we found a bunch more that we could get rid of. It's like, for whatever reason, it's somehow maybe, I think it's because maybe we didn't purge before we moved, but you know, we found books that in our case books we got rid of because we had, we, we had more than one copy of the book. Like, Oh yeah. And if, it's, yeah. and if it's a book we love, like why not donate it? So somebody else can then love that book. Like then it's not, doing it. any, yeah, not doing any good on our shelf. Um, or, you know, books that, um, you know, just books that we that that like, well, like she talked about books that had served the purpose, like, you know, books that we enjoyed at the time, like, you know, books I enjoyed in my early 20s when I went through like a Clive Cussler phase. Um, and then and those were super fun then. And we've kept them on the shelves. But now, like, we're good. We can move mm-hmm. on from that. Like, you know, so I, I think there's there's something to be said for I think some people hear about this and go over my dead body. I mean, I said it myself, like before I read, you know, before oh, I read whatever like and 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 and, but I think there's something to be said for going maybe there are some books that I could do without like you know taking a more moderate approach Absolutely. like maybe some of these books um my one thing Alexis you were talking about what's one thing my one thing that I wanted to say at the end that we didn't already talk about is to me one of the most like painfully true things in this entire book is when she's talking about for listeners if you don't know Marie Kondo says every item in your home must have a designated place which sounds like insane. But she says the reason every item must have a designated place is because the existence of an item without a home multiplies the chances that your space will become cluttered again. And that's and 100% she, correct. And that is painfully true. Because she says if you have something with no home and you just put it in a place, then it draws to itself other things that don't have a home. And then you have like a junk dresser. Correct. Or 100% something. correct. Yes. That was that was one of the things that I read the book and I thought, man, that is so true. And now I'm like thinking I need to find places for things because we do. We have places in our in our house. It is the high counter that is there's like a look through between our kitchen and our living room so that I can stand at the sink and see into the living room. And the counter between those two rooms is the place. It's the place where all of this stuff gets like about every two weeks. You can't see it. There's no counter because it's covered with stuff, but it's yep. the stuff that there is no place for. And I, that blew yep. my mind that, that she, you know, she honed in on that. And I thought, man, that is, she's right. Like, cause you know, people are always like, how do these junk drawers, what, how does this happen? Where's all the stuff come from? And she says, it's because everything doesn't have a place. And that was one of the things that I thought was most valuable, just practically speaking. Um, one of the things that I took away from the book that I think I probably will try to employ at least to some degree, again, 
nothing's perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm not going to be emptying out my handbag every day. But you know what? My handbag does have a place. I put my handbag in the same place now all the time. That's Uh, (laughs) my goal is to find a place for everything. That is my goal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's it's yeah, that was one of my favorite parts. So. Yeah, it's it's good advice. Good advice, certainly. Well, we should move on to passing on. Uh, So, Katie, what is your recommendation for us? So my recommendation tonight doesn't really have anything to do with minimalism or Marie Kondo. But um, in this article that I'm going to recommend, there is an interesting discussion of the um, the decay of objects. So I'm recommending an article tonight from Christianity Today um, called What Shakespeare Taught Me About Ash Wednesday. And um, it was published March 6th of this month, March 6th, 2019, by a guy, Paul Willis. And it's just a really interesting meditation. um, And it's in the Lent section of Christianity Today. But um, he talks about publishing his first novel and then there being extra copies that never sold. And um, he had to decide if the publishers would destroy them or if he wanted them. And he said, of course, I want them. And he talks about these boxes and boxes of his novels, you know, kind of being left in a barn and slowly starting to decay. And then kind of, you know, takes that as a as a takeoff then to think about the idea of the problem of decay of possessions, but also of people's lives. And then he he goes into a discussion of um, kind of Shakespeare's sonnets and the different ways that we can try to um, last, right? Like having children and making poetry and things like that. I just, I found it really interesting and a great, a great kind of Lenten um, exploration or Lenten meditation. So that's my recommendation for tonight. That sounds completely fascinating. Um, My recommendation is uh, a book. I I like the book. I don't love the book, but I love the concept and it's called um, the gentle art of Swedish death cleaning by Margarita Magnusson. And when everybody, whenever I mention this title, anybody, they're like, what death cleaning? What is that? It just simply means when you are getting older, how to deal with your stuff so that your children don't have to deal with your stuff. And it is so important. My father-in-law died a couple of years ago and his estate, his possessions, everything was a complete mess. All of that was left in his wife's, his widow's hands. And my husband had, thankfully at that time, he was underemployed because it was became a full-time job for over a year to handle that stuff. And a little thoughtfulness about what, how to tidy up for the next generation, I think is something that everybody should think about. That's a, yeah, that sounds like a great read um, and a great reminder also. Um, my recommendation uh, is an article in Yes uh, on Yes Magazine's website. Uh, this is how borrowing things from our neighbors strengthens society uh, by Sarah Lazarevich, possibly. I might be getting that name wrong. Um, that uh, that just came out um, this month, um, and it's it's presented as a comic, but it it talks about a lot of the the social effects of like we were just talking about not borrowing things, not having neighbors. Um, and the, the social benefits of, of having those kinds of relationships, um, that the act of borrowing a cup of sugar can actually be socially beneficial. Um, so that's going to be my recommendation. Um, and we'll make sure that the show notes have a lot of the pieces or the pieces, all the pieces we've talked about and, and maybe a few extras as well, uh, including, um, the, uh, the lovely, uh, graphic of how to con Marie an essay that, uh, that Christina's student so kindly provided. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Katie Grubbs and Christina Bieber-Lake, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Emily Dickinson. Until then, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love.